Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good evening, Grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace that we have seen here tonight with these baptisms and with these child dedications. And we know it's only by your grace that any of us are where we are. And if we have a relationship with you, it's only because of your grace. And we're so thankful, God. And we know it's only your grace, Father, that will enable us to hear from your word and to be transformed. So would you help me to preach and teach in such a way that we leave here loving you so much more and wanting to live for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn to the book of 2 Kings, if you will, please. 2 Kings chapter 2. Perhaps uh, you're not that familiar with the book of 2 Kings uh, or the book of 1 Kings. There are a couple of my favorites in the Hebrew Bible. They're, they're one book. They're just known as Kings, but we break them up. Um, they're, they're so exciting. Um, you, in, in 2 Kings... Um, as you begin reading, you realize that fire comes from heaven and kills a captain and 50 of his men. And then fire comes from heaven and kills a captain and 50 of his men. And then the third captain with 50 of his men learns about the Lord and he is not killed by the fire coming down from heaven. Then you have a prophet who flies up to heaven in a whirlwind. You have a prophet who takes his cloak off and hits the Jordan River like Linus Van Pelt from Peanuts and the Jordan River parts. You have a flash flood which is provided to some thirsty Israelites. They're thirsty. They ask the Lord for water. He sends a flash flood to satisfy their thirst. And that's just in the first three chapters of Second Kings. And then we're going to look at a fascinating passage tonight. And, and people think the Old Testament is boring. Oh, it's far from boring. Passage tonight is 2 Kings uh, chapter 2. Before we look at the passage, I do want to bring your attention, since I brought up Peanuts and Linus Van Pelt. Um, there's a Peanuts cartoon, if you can see here. Uh, it's raining, it's pouring down rain, and Lucy says to Linus, Boy, look at it rain! What if it floods the whole world? Linus responds, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. To which Lucy replies, you've taken a great load off my mind. And then Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. We're going to look at some sound theology tonight from 2 Kings chapter 2. So direct your attention, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19 through 25. Hear the words of the gracious God that we serve. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And Elisha said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went to the spring of water, and he threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall, shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them, in the name of the Lord. 
And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. What an appropriate passage to look at as we celebrate these baptisms and these baby dedications. What? You don't think this is a great section of God's word to preach on as we celebrate baptism and baby dedications? Why not? We've got water and we've got a bald preacher, both of which we just had in the baptistry. I didn't clear that with Greg. I was trying to. He said, I have two things to remind you before the service. That was the one thing I needed to run by you, and I forgot. I apologize. But those aren't the reasons why I think this is an appropriate section of God's Word for us to discuss baptism and baby dedications. I think it's the theology of the passage that makes it appropriate. It's what this passage teaches us about our God that makes it right to be here in this passage tonight. This message is directed to all of us, to those who are baptized, to the parents who are dedicating their children, and to you as a church body. It's appropriate for all of us because we need to be reminded of two things about our God tonight. The first thing that we're going to see about our God, we're going to see God's grace. We all need God's grace, and a salt shaker is about to remind us about God's grace. Look again at verses 19 to 22. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. And Elisha said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went to the spring of water and he threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. All right, let's get the context here. Earlier in the chapter, the prophet Elijah was taken up to heaven in the whirlwind. Elisha caught his cloak and, and succeeded him. And now Elisha has gone to the city of Jericho where we pick up the story. The men of Jericho approach Elisha and they tell them that their water supply is contaminated. They tell Elisha, it's a great city as you can see. It's pleasant. There's lots of luxuries here. But the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. In other words, it was a pleasant city. Jericho was a happening town. They had lots of luxuries. Starbucks, Target, Inabout, no roundabouts. This was a great city to live in. The, the men are telling Elisha, as you can see, it's a pleasant city to live in, but the water is bad, and the crops won't grow, and the land is unfruitful. In verse 19, it's, he says, they say, the land is unfruitful. The Hebrew word here for unfruitful, sakal, is better worded, suffers miscarriages. In fact, that's what Elisha tells the town after he heals the water. He says there will be no more miscarriages caused by the water. The water was lethal and it was killing the cattle and it was killing the people. The people and the livestock were suffering miscarriages due to the bad water supply. As the people, as the pregnant women and the pregnant cows and the sheep drank the water. They were experiencing miscarriages because the water was poisonous and lethal. 
So what does Elijah do? Elisha do? He says, hey, bring me a bowl and put some salt in it. And they do that. And he throws it into the water supply and he says, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. And just like that, a salt shaker becomes a means of God's grace. Maybe he took a container of Morton's salt. Remember Morton's salt with the girl with the rainbow and the salts, I mean the umbrella and the salts falling out behind her? Maybe he cut the top off and doing that. I don't know what he did. He put it in a bowl. That's not important. What's important is that God's grace came to Jericho. Now, what do we do with this passage? How does this story about using a salt shaker help a church today? How does it relate to baptisms and baby dedications? Well, notice first that the salt wasn't what provided the healing. The salt was the tangible, outward, visible thing that the people saw. It was the word of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord that provided the healing. Verse 22 says, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Thus says the Lord, it was God's word that brought God's grace to the the people. It was a picture of God's transforming grace. Any Old Testament lover would pick up on what's happening here with the city of Jericho when, when the... Jewish people would have read the books of First and Second Kings. They'd have thought Jericho. Wait, wait a minute. We we read something in First Kings about Jericho, but we remember something from Joshua. Do you remember the Battle of Jericho, which sadly we've made a song and made Joshua the hero? Joshua didn't fight the Battle of Jericho. It was the Lord. The Lord fought the Battle of Jericho. Joshua just organized and administrated a bunch of people to walk around the city and then yell and blow trumpets. The Lord fought the battle of Jericho. But do you remember in Joshua 6, what Joshua said about the city of Jericho? In Joshua 6, 26, it says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So Jericho was under a curse. Then you get to 1 Kings and we read about a man named Hiel who rebuilt Jericho. 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 34 says, In his days Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram his firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Sagub according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. The city of Jericho was under a curse. And a man tried to rebuild it and lost his kids due to that fact. It's under a curse. And then all of a sudden, a salt shaker changes all of that. The curse was removed from the city of Jericho by God's grace through his word, through the prophet Elisha. God's grace came to Jericho. And God's grace has come to Grace Baptist. These baptisms that we witness tonight are evidence of God's grace. These baby dedications that we've experienced here tonight are evidence of God's grace. God's grace is moving through the families of Grace Baptist. But back to our God. This strange situation is telling us something about our God. Isn't this just like our God? 
He delights to take the most sin-wrecked, twisted, distorted situations and turn them around as trophies of his grace. That's what he did for the city of Jericho. Isn't that like our God? He delights. He takes joy to take the mangled situations that we get ourselves in or find ourselves in and turn them around to be a trophy of his grace. Listen, no matter what you've done in your life, God can and will turn it around for your good and his glory. He takes the most messed up, sin-soaked, dumb, stupid decisions and situations that we make and bring about and find our sins, and he can bring redemption out of them. God specializes in redemption. Listen, I don't care what you're going through right now. You say, you don't understand my situation. I don't need to because I know my God. He delights to take twisted families and situations and circumstances and use them to be a trophy of his grace for his glory. He specializes in redemption. Some of you today need to get in a time machine with me. Buckle up, because we're going back to Jericho, and we're going to see a city that was under a curse. But God, by his grace, through his word, came to that city and reversed the curse in their situation. And it's what our God does all the time in people's lives. It's a picture of God's grace. Keep that in mind. Because God will keep transforming people and families in this church in the future. These baptisms and these baby dedications are evidence of God's grace. We have our own little Jerichos here. Kids whose parents have made a decision to teach them about the triune God. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. And we have some kids who have been drawn by God's grace to himself and have experienced salvation. If any of us are Christians tonight, it is all due to God's sovereign grace drawing us to himself because we were all stuck under the curse of sin. But the gospel of God's transforming grace has removed it and it's gone. What did Isaac Watts pen in his great song, Joy to the World? He said, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. The curse of Genesis 3 that came to all of us because of Adam and Eve's sin is not too far for God's grace to reach into your life. As far as the curse is found, God's grace can be there. So we can sing joy to the world because through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, dying in our place to bring us to God, God's blessing comes to us as far as the curse is found. Joy came to Jericho and joy has come to Grace Baptist Church. And it's all due to God's grace. There's something else the author of 2 Kings wants us to see about God that is very important for parents and kids in a church body, and it's God's holiness. We've seen God's grace, but we also need a picture of God's holiness. 
We must keep God's holiness, his set-apartness, his differentness, his purity, his otherness. There's no one like him in all the world. We must keep that before us if we are to grow as disciples. You baptism candidates, if you're to grow as a Christian, you need to keep God's grace before your eyes. And God's holiness. You parents who are raising your kids to know the Lord, you must keep God's grace and God's holiness before the eyes of your children. And church, you must keep God's grace and his holiness before your eyes. Look at verse 23 to 25 where we will see God's holiness. So Elisha went up there from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And from there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Samaria. Well, what do we do with these verses? A bald prophet gets made fun of by a teenage mob. He curses them, and 42 of the hoodlums become lunch for two she-bears. How does this story relate to baptism? In baby dedications. What do we do with these verses? How many of you read this verse and think, oh, I know how to apply that to my life? (laughs) Let me tell you what you don't do, okay? If Greg or James are coming up these steps to preach sometime, do not say, go up, you bald head. (laughs) That's what you don't do. What you do with these verses... And what these verses should do to you and should do to me is they should scare us. And they should frighten us. And they should stir up afresh and anew a reverent fear and respect and desire to please our God. These verses should come and wake us up and they should jolt us and zap us out of our lukewarm passivity. That's what these verses are supposed to do to us. The setting is in Bethel, which is where Elijah and Elisha started their journey earlier in the chapter. Bethel meant the house of God, but it was no longer the house of God. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12. One book over to your left. 1 Kings chapter 12. And let's see what King Jeroboam did to the city of Bethel. God's grace came to Jericho, but if you rewind in the history of Israel and Judah, you see what King Jeroboam did to the city of Bethel. He turned it from being the house of God into something else. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 through 33. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Remember, the nation was split apart at this point, and he's afraid that they're going to return to the family of David. So Jeroboam, the king, took counsel and made two calves of gold. Okay, any Old Testament scholar at this point, their ears kind of perk up like, oh, a golden calf? We've, we've heard about that before in Exodus 32. And Jeroboam said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. 
Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, which is the exact thing that Aaron said to Israel when they made the golden calf in Exodus 32. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Notice it says that he devised all these things from his own heart. It was John Calvin that said, our hearts are idol factories, always pumping out idols and things that we worship. And that's what Jeroboam did here. Make a couple of golden cows, put them up for the people to worship, which is what the neighbors around Israel worshipped. Because we think it's strange that they worship an idol, right? A golden cow. They probably think it's strange that we worship the things that we worship. TV, sports, whatever you fill in the blank. For 80 years, the city worshipped bulls and didn't give a rip about Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. So Elisha, the Lord's prophet, cruises by one day. And what do you expect a mob of Bethel teens to do? Bethel teens to do. They mock him. They worship other gods now. They don't worship Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Most likely, Elisha was just walking past the city, not through it. And they mock him and say, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. In other words, they were asking Elisha to go up from the region. Get out of town, Yahweh's prophet. You're not welcome here. They knew of Elijah, Elisha. They knew him. His head probably would have been covered as he was walking past, but they knew who he was. He was Yahweh, the sovereign Lord's prophet. He was the voice of the Lord. His words were the word of the Lord to the nation, and they didn't want to have anything to do it. So what does Elisha do? He does what any bald prophet would do when a bunch of teenagers with Beatles-esque mop tops start making fun of his bald head. He calls down a curse on the boys and two she-bears arrive and kill 42 of the teenagers. Most likely they were teenagers. Now, why? Why does Elisha do this? Did he switch to decaf that morning and he's just a little bit cranky? Could he not find a Starbucks on his iPhone GPS? I couldn't yesterday driving back from L.A. and I was frustrated because it was taking me places and there was no Starbucks there. Maybe that's what's going through Elisha's head. It's not though. Is Elisha being over the top here? No, he's not. This passage is meant to make us uncomfortable. Does it make you uncomfortable? Does it seem... Like it's not fair. It should frighten us and startle us and wake us up. Two issues that will help us understand why Elisha was not out of line in doing this. One, the curse. If the curse was not approved by Yahweh, the Lord, then Yahweh would not have sent the bears. Right? It says he cursed them in the name of the Lord. If you have a problem with the curse, you have a problem with God. God is the one who sent the bears. He said, I curse you in the name of the Lord, and here come two she-bears. 
Who sent the she-bears? The Lord did, because he cursed them in the Lord's name. What about the bears? The bears were covenant bears. God warned his people that he would send wild beasts if they turned away from worshiping him wholeheartedly, which is what King Jeroboam did to the city of Bethel, the house of God. And for 80 years it had been this way. For 80 years the city of Bethel was not worshiping the Lord. They were worshiping a golden cow. So these are covenant bears that the Lord said, I will send among you. Don't believe me? Leviticus 26, 22 says this, And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. God is serious about his people being sold out to him. He is serious about wholehearted devotion. God demands first commandment faithfulness. You shall have no other gods before me. He wants our hearts. John Bloom said this recently. God blatantly entices us to seek happiness, joy, pleasure, whatever you want to call it, in him with verses like this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We're supposed to want pleasure. Why does God want us to pleasure? Because it is a crucial indicator. Pleasure is the meter in your heart that measures how valuable, how precious someone or something is to you. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Your treasure is what you love. Your greatest treasure is what you love the most. As Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart, what you love, will be also. You will never be a true stoic because you can't help experiencing pleasure in what you treasure. God wired you that way. I love this line. Pleasure is the whistleblower of your heart. Think about that. Pleasure is the whistleblower of your heart. More than anything else, it exposes what you really love. If something sinful gives you pleasure, it's not a pleasure problem. It's a treasure problem. Your pleasure mechanism is likely functioning just fine. Get that. Your pleasure mechanism is functioning fine. You want pleasure. It's what you love that's out of whack. And pleasure is outing you. It's revealing that despite what your mouth says in the image you try to project to others, something evil is precious to you. That's what sin is at the root, treasuring evil, which makes the fight of faith in the Christian life a fight for delight. It's a fight to believe God's promises of happiness over the false promises of happiness we hear from the world, our fallen flesh, and the devil. And yes, it often involves denying ourselves pleasure, but only denying ourselves a lesser, viler pleasure in order to have a much higher pleasure in Jesus. He says, so be a full, unashamed, bold Christian hedonist. Pursue your pleasure in God, the greatest treasure with all of your heart. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's where the city of Bethel went wrong. They no longer treasured Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And their heart was a whistleblower, saying you're taking pleasure in other things. And this passage 
is a call to us to come back to the Lord and to love him with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. I like what Matthew Henry says about this passage, about the boys being torn apart by the she-bears. He says, Let the hideous shrieks and groans of this wicked, wretched brood make our flesh tremble for fear of God. Grace, we need to recover and or maintain a fear of God. Of the Lord. God is holy. He expects wholehearted devotion from His people. If you think we shouldn't be talking about fearing a holy God, then let me tell you that Jesus didn't get the memo. If you don't think it's appropriate for Christians to be talking about fearing a holy God, then somebody forgot to tell Jesus. You know why? Because in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, this is what Jesus says to the Ephesian church. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus said this to a church. Jesus said this to the Ephesian church, which the apostle Paul planted. Do you think Grace Baptist is above falling away and losing its first love? I'm not talking about losing your salvation. We do not believe that here. We believe if you're born again, you are born again forever. I'm talking about losing your passion and your desire and your love for God. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for any of these baptism candidates. I don't want it for any of the children that are being raised to fear the Lord. I want us to be a church that loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we've seen in the book of Philippians, the way to do that is to keep coming back to the gospel and to keep being uh, staggered that God, out of his great love, would send Jesus to die in our place. That's how you stir the affections. You come back to the gospel. You come back to God's grace. When you sin, you need God's grace. And when you're tempted to sin, you need God's holiness. Two things about our God that we need to be reminded of. May he give us the grace to be a church that is sold out to him, that find our delight in him more than anything else in this world. May we be a church that can say like the psalmist out of Psalm 4, that you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grain abound. The way the psalmist would say it today is, you put more joy in my heart than what the world has when they have the second home wherever and the boat and all the TVs and the cars and everything else. Can you say, God, it doesn't matter if I have anything. If I have you, I have everything. I think by God's grace, we can be that kind of church if we keep coming back to the gospel and all that Jesus is for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this obscure passage that on the surface seems like we would not even be able to do anything with it. And yet, God, we see a clear picture of your grace and we see a clear picture of your holiness. And would you remind us, God, that when we do mess up and when we do sin and we make stupid decisions and we sin and find ourselves in twisted, messed up, messy situations, would you remind us that your grace forgives us and would you remind us that your grace transforms us and remind us that your grace can come into any situation and change it for our good and your glory. 
because you specialize in redemption. And God, may you remind us of your holiness when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to delight in all the flashy, sparkly things that this world offers to us. Would you remind us that you are a holy God and you don't want us to worship anything or anyone but you. Change our hearts, we ask, by your grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.